0: Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching For It. If any of you want to find out a bit more about the things we talk about in today's episode, remember that you can find all the episodes of this podcast on www.searchingforit.org, where I've also included a recommended reading page for each of the episodes, and you can find all the web articles, podcasts, and YouTube videos that i found helpful researching for this episode. Relative to some of the older episodes of this podcast, I found that for this month's episode, there was a lot more top-quality information available online, and not so many formal books by distinguished authors and professors. And as anyone who spent enough time on the internet will know, you don't have to look too far to find some pretty weird rabbit holes. I'll admit, when I was turning 13 or so, I was absolutely sold by those conspiracy videos on YouTube about Bush being behind 9-11 and the Illuminati... The kinds of videos about the New World Order and the ones that show the Illuminati sign on dollar bills or whatever. There's a bit of a conspiracist subculture that's developed around those kinds of theories, it's nothing new. And I think that the subject of today's episode, the idea that we're living in some kind of simulation, probably goes hand in hand with that way of thinking. But the further down the rabbit hole you go, I think you start to realise that the kinds of people talking about simulation theory aren't just rogue YouTube channels with a few subscribers and conspiracy theorists on backwater internet forums. They're professors, scientists, entrepreneurs. In actual fact, the hypothesis that we're living in a simulation is a serious research topic for philosophers and physicists, and some of their arguments are well worth taking seriously. Seriously enough that Elon Musk, for example, has said that as a result of hearing these arguments, he thinks that the chance we're living in the real world is one in billions. Or, in other words, we're almost certainly living in a simulation. So what I want to look at today is, firstly, what these arguments are that seem so strong as to render it almost certain that our world is a simulation, and then think, what if we are in a simulation? What would the implications be? Should we care? And how would this affect our lives? But firstly, when I say that we might almost certainly be living in a simulation, what does this bring to mind? Lots of people have lots of different ideas about what a simulated world might look like or feel like. Would there be glitches in our world if it was simulated? Would it be pixelated? Would everything look cartoony and video game-like? Well, Elon Musk spoke about this at the World Government Summit in 2017, and this is what he had to say.
1: I think particularly when you see the advancement of something like video games, you know, like, say, 40 years ago, you had video games, the most advanced video game would be like like Pong, where you had like two rectangles and a and a dot. And you're like batting it back and forth. I played it. Oh yeah, like, me too, exactly. That's I played old. Pong. <laughs> Exactly. It sort of dates you a little bit. But yeah, we we both played the same game. Um and that was like wow, that was a pretty fun game at the time. Um but now you can see a video game that's uh, photorealistic, almost photorealistic, and millions of people playing simultaneously. And Um, and you see where things are going with virtual reality um, and augmented reality, and if you extrapolate that out into the future with any rate of progress at all, like even uh, 0.1% or something like that uh, a year, then eventually those games will be indistinguishable from reality. They'll be so realistic, you will not be able to tell the difference between that game and the reality as we know it.
0: The point is that if our universe were a simulation, it's not as if we'd look around and say, hey, everything looks awfully cartoon-like, guess we must be in a simulation. Our universe could look exactly as it does now, and we would likely have no idea that we were in a simulation. The pink hue of a tropical sunset, the smell of fresh grass, the feel of cold air against your skin, there's no reason to suspect that any of your experiences would feel any different whether you happen to be living in a real world or whether you happen to be living in a simulation. A simulated world could be precisely the same as a real world in all ways other than just the fact that the simulated world happens to be simulated. Now, of course, if our entire universe was a simulation, there would be one big difference insofar as there must be some other universe that acts as our creator, that went to the effort of building and simulating our universe. This can often bring to mind an image of something like The Matrix, so in that film, human beings are artificially grown and plugged into a kind of supercomputer where they live out a simulated life in a simulated reality, never aware that the universe they think they're living in doesn't actually exist, unaware that in reality they're just a body floating in a human farm plugged into a supercomputer. But when we're talking about simulation theory, that's probably not the kind of world that we're talking about. So Nick Bostrom, the philosopher at Oxford University who formulated the simulation argument that we'll look at, He made an appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast late last year, and he pointed out that if we imagine some advanced race who were able to simulate many universes at a time at a low cost, plugging artificial humans into a supercomputer like in the Matrix probably wouldn't be the best way of doing so. See, if they were able to build and run simulated universes, they probably wouldn't need the human body at all. It would be cheaper and more straightforward to build the simulation as essentially a computer program and let it run its course. So when we're talking about the prospect that we might live in a simulation it's probably safer to think about something like the computer game the sims rather than the matrix and if any of you don't know the sims it's a classic computer game where you create a family of virtual humans you build them a house and you manage them as they go about their lives getting married finding jobs having children and you see them live out their lives on your screen but these sims it's not as if they have a real world body that's plugged into your laptop at home All they are, at their core, are pieces of code in a computer programme. And when Nick Bostrom presents his simulation argument, that's more or less the kind of world he has in mind, the kind of world where it's us who are actually the video game characters going about our lives within the computer of some highly advanced civilization. Obviously, though, there's a big jump that you have to make to get from The Sims to an entire simulated universe populated with conscious beings and detailed to the extent that it can't be distinguished from reality. Because for any of you who have played The Sims, you'll know that it's pretty obvious that you're playing a video game and not watching real-life webcam footage from some other part of the world. The Sims doesn't really look like real life. Well, as Elon Musk pointed out earlier, in the last few decades, we have made immense steps forward all the way from Pong to VR headsets where you genuinely feel like you're immersed in a different reality. And there's no reason to think that the trend couldn't continue to the point where we do in fact create entire simulations containing conscious beings. See, there's a whole subfield of philosophy, the philosophy of mind, that tries to examine what consciousness is and answer questions like could a human mind ever be grounded in something other than a human brain, so, you know, maybe something like a computer program. And in actual fact, the dominant response from philosophers today tends to be, yes, there's no reason to suppose that mental states could only be grounded in brain states. We could, in theory, ground mental states, so, you know, house human minds in some other kind of physical states. So imagine, for example, that scientists were able to fully reconstruct a human brain, but instead of building the brain from carbon atoms, as they're actually composed of in human beings, the brain was built of silicon atoms instead. Now, given what we know about the human brain and the human mind, there's no reason to think that this silicon brain would be unable to generate actual mental states. In other words, if the silicon brain were plugged into a human body, it would be able to think and experience the world just like any other human. And why stop with silicon brains? See, for many philosophers, it's not even necessary that the structure that we build to house a human mind has to be some kind of brain in the first place. What's important in creating a human mind are the kind of computational processes that occur within the brain. So given those assumptions from the philosophy of mind, if we were able to fully replicate those processes that happen in a human brain in some other kind of system, maybe if we were able to code a human brain, there's every reason to think that we could simulate a real conscious human being and house it within a computer program. And in actual fact, we might not even be too far away from being able to do so. There's a NASA scientist called Rich Terrell who's spoken quite a bit about the simulation argument, and he's speculated, in his own words, that we might be just a generation away from being those gods who create those universes. So that's the kind of theory of mind that Bostrom's running with when he makes a simulation argument. He thinks that there's every reason to believe that one day, maybe when we release The Sims version 757, The characters in the game might not just be basic cartoon characters with ten different stock phrases they've been programmed to say to each other. They might be genuinely autonomous, conscious human beings, living in a simulated universe detailed to the extent that it's indistinguishable from reality. Of course, this is all conjecture, the philosophy of mind hasn't been solved yet, and it might be the case that doing this is actually impossible anyone who believes that our minds consist in something more than just physical states, maybe something like a a non-physical soul, they might have a problem with the idea that we could ever simulate a conscious human being. If any of you listening are in that group who find this idea a bit surprising, and if you're sceptical about the idea that human consciousness is something that could ever, even in theory, be simulated by computer code, well, hold your thought, because after making the simulation argument, I'll point out how we should probably conclude that we're almost certainly living in a simulation, even if you think it's unlikely that simulations are even possible. I'll explain why that might be the case in a bit, but to move on to the argument itself now, imagine what human civilization would look like thousands of years from now if we were able to survive that far ahead without, you know, blowing ourselves up or without developing some kind of super virus or AI that wipes us all out. Imagine that we just keep on developing. Well, eventually, we'd reach a stage where we have access to all of the different technologies that we know to be physically possible. Given enough time, we'd eventually reach a stage where we've mastered the laws of physics and we're capable of doing whatever we like within the limits of the laws of physics. Well, there's a few different things you'd expect us to have done by that stage. So for starters, you'd probably think that we'd have taken advantage of cognitive enhancement technologies by that stage. We'd be far more intelligent, more rational, more productive than we currently are. But what people think about what we'd have done by the time we reach this stage, the stage where we have access to all of the different technologies that are physically possible, and Bostrom calls this stage a post-human era. One thing that a lot of people suggest is that these post-humans would likely want to run ancestor simulations. So... These are simulations of the entire history of the universe, simulations that run through their ancestors, through our own lives, all the way up until that post-human era. And you know, there are lots of reasons why they might want to do this. Even today, as we've said, millions of people around the world run basic simulations like The Sims, just for fun. So maybe our post-human descendants would also want to build and run lots of simulations for fun too. But there are better reasons as well. Another way that people use simulations today is for research purposes, so one very recent example of that is actually to do with a coronavirus outbreak. Now at the time of recording, the UK government's policies to deal with the outbreak have been pretty controversial and unconventional, but they've been based on a series of simulations that they've run. Not simulations containing conscious people, because obviously we don't know how to do that yet, but simulations that predict how quickly the number of coronavirus cases will rise. And the reason they're doing this is by predicting when the virus will peak, the government can then implement policies to control the timing and the length of the peak, and ensure that the healthcare services will always be able to cope with the amount of new coronavirus cases. Now, imagine that the UK government had access to post-human technologies, and they could run millions of simulations that were detailed to the finest point, that accurately represented the real world. The government could then take every single technique that the real-world scientists come up with to control the coronavirus outbreak, They could code these techniques into the simulations, and they could see which ones work. They could test each of these techniques millions of times, and if one repeatedly worked in these lifelike simulations, they'd have good reason to think that it would probably work in the real world, and then they could use that technique and manage the outbreak. Another example this often talked about is something like climate change. So imagine that our post-human descendants make some kind of mistake, and they were running the risk of having some disastrous climate effect, that could wipe them all out. So, they need to come up with the best method of avoiding climate change. What would they do? Well, again, they could run a million different ancestor simulations and see what methods the simulated people come up with to avoid climate change. And all the post-humans would have to do is figure out which method worked the best, and they could use it themselves. What they'd be able to do by running all of these different simulations is see how different things work with different variables, But without having to replicate these conditions and these variables themselves in their own world, they can just code it into the simulation and run the experiments there. And by the time we reach a post-human stage, it's likely that we would be able to run a huge amount of simulations, each containing an entire simulated universe with an entire history of simulated people. This is because, and Bostrom has a whole section on this in his paper, If we imagine a post-human civilization and all the different technological capabilities that this would bring, presumably they would be able to convert whole planets and other resources into computers, essentially having computers the size of planets. Bostrom does some maths here that I'm not going to go into because it probably won't make much sense, but with a computer the size of a large planet, we would be able to simulate the consciousness of the entire history of humankind, of everyone who has ever lived, by using just one one one-millionth of the processing power of the computer, just for one second. And this is using conservative estimates and using only one computer. So in other words, if we used the entire processing power of the computer for one whole minute to simulate the entire history of humankind, we could expect to simulate the entire universe around 60 million times in one minute. And just imagine how beneficial that would be, Imagine how much valuable research we could get from running all of these simulations. As the physicist George Smoot pointed out, we'd be able to analyse the rise and fall of civilizations and ensure that our own civilization never collapsed. We could figure out what causes war and make sure that never happens. And heck, a kid in his bedroom could just run a load of simulations to harvest the best memes that humankind can come up with to post on his group chat. So the point is that if we were to reach a post-human era if we ever got that far, we would be able to run a great many of simulations, an inconceivably high number, so many that I wouldn't even know the word to express how great that number is. So once we hypothesise that an interested post-human civilization would run such a great number of simulations, we can then take a look at the simulation argument, and the way it's going to work is basically the one of three propositions must be true. So, the first proposition, this one looks at the stage that the human race is at now, it looks at what it would take for us to eventually reach a post-human era, and it says that almost all civilizations who reach the stage that we're at now go extinct before they reach a post-human era, or, in other words, the probability that we will reach a post-human era is zero. It's impossible. And now, the second proposition says that almost no post-human civilizations are interested in running simulations, or in other words, the probability that they would be interested in running simulations is zero, it won't happen. So, we might accept one of those first two propositions, maybe A, that the chance of our civilization becoming post-human is literally zero, or B, that the probability that post-humans would run simulations, if they ever were to exist, is again zero. But there seem to be good reasons to be suspicious about each of these propositions, I mean, we might think it's unlikely that we ever reach a post-human era. We might think that maybe humans will wipe themselves out before they get that far, or we might think that human beings are fundamentally limited in some way, and even with cognitive enhancement, we'd never be able to develop all the possible technologies. And we might think the post-humans would be so dissimilar to ourselves that we couldn't possibly make inferences about what they do with their time, and we couldn't possibly suppose that they'd be interested in running simulations. But even if these seem unlikely... Even if we think that we probably won't reach a post human era, and you know, even if we think that we almost certainly won't reach a post human era, it seems like you have to be awfully confident to say that the probability of us reaching a post human era is literally zero, or that the probability that post humans would be interested in running simulations is literally zero. So, unless you're really confident in your predictions, you might find it a stretch to say that it's impossible that we reach a post human era or impossible that we would then be interested in running simulations. So then, remember, what the simulation argument is arguing is that we have to accept at least one of the three propositions. So if we're rejecting propositions A and B, if we're saying that there's at least some chance that we'll reach a posthuman era, and at least some chance that we would still be interested in running simulations, then we're forced to accept the third proposition, which is that we are almost certainly living inside a simulation. See, the argument here is that if there is at least some chance that we end up running simulations, the number of simulations that we'd run would be so astronomically high that it would completely outweigh the probability that we don't end up running these simulations in the first place. If you find that thought a bit too abstract to wrap your head around, just think of it in terms of real numbers. So, let's say that the chance that we reach a post human era is something quite low, something above zero, but really quite low, so maybe something like one in one thousand and let's say that the chance that post humans are interested in running simulations is also really really low, maybe one in one thousand again, in which case, to see the probability that our civilization that we actually end up running simulations sometime in the future in a post human world, you'd have to times these two probabilities against each other so 1 in 1,000 times 1 in 1,000, and that delivers a probability of 1 in a million. Just trust me on the maths here. So running with these numbers, we'd say that there's a 1 in a million chance that we ever end up running simulations in a post-human world. But then, think back to what we said earlier about how many simulations we'd likely run in that world. As we said, the number would likely be inconceivably high in the billions upon billions and in a world where the total number of simulated universes is so high, you'd have to wonder well, what are the chances that the world I'm living in is the real world? Given what we said earlier about how simulated universes are indistinguishable from the real world, you can't tell which one you're in, on what basis could we say, of course, this is the real world? Everything would look the same whether it was real or simulated. All we'd have to go off is the fact that there are billions upon billions of simulated universes and just one real universe. So what are the chances that we happen to be in the one real universe? Well, the chance would be very low indeed. And then the final step in the argument. If we run with the idea that the chance that we end up running simulations is one in a million, while the number of simulations that we then end up running is far, far greater than one million, then right here, right now, the total number of simulated universes that we would have to expect will exist is far greater than one. And so, with no reason to suspect that we're living in the real universe and not a simulated reality, we'd have to say that we are almost certainly living in a simulation right now. What's amazing about this argument is that the math holds no matter what probability you assign propositions A and B. I mean, let's say that you think it's really unlikely that we reach a post-human era, and you think it's really unlikely that posthumans would be interested in running simulations. Let's say that you think the probability of each is literally one in a million. Well, like before, we can times one in a million by one in a million. And then we can see that the chance that we will actually reach a post-human era and run simulations is then one in a trillion. But again, it's very likely that the total number of simulated universes that would exist in that one in a trillion world would vastly exceed one trillion. So if the probability that we run so many simulations is one in a trillion, but there are quadrillions and quadrillions of simulated universes, we would have to say that the number of simulated universes is very much more likely to outweigh the number of real universes. So again, we are almost certainly living in a simulation. Now I'll admit, I had a little bit of trouble getting my head around this concept initially. See, I thought that if there's, say, a a one-in-a-million, for argument's sake, chance that we go on to create simulations, then no matter how many simulations we'd go on to create in that one-in-a-million world, it seems strange to say that the likelihood that we're in one of those simulated universes could be any greater than one-in-a-million. Because, you know, 999,999 times out of a million, we don't create simulations, So 999,999 times out of a million, there are no simulations. So again, 999,999 times out of a million, we must surely be in the real world and there are no simulations. That's what I thought initially, and if any of you are having a similar kind of difficulty, I heard Nick Bostrom allude to a parallel argument on the Joe Rogan podcast that I think helps to understand why it really is the case that we are almost certainly living in a simulation. So, this parallel argument, the way it goes is, imagine that Sleeping Beauty signs up to an experiment, and as part of the experiment, she walks into a room, she lies down on a bed where she's injected with a drug that puts her to sleep for a little while. While she's asleep, the experimenter flips a coin. If the coin lands heads, she'll be woken up and interviewed. And as part of the interview, she'll be asked, do you think the coin landed heads or tails? And once she's given her answer, Sleeping Beauty can then leave the room. Alternatively, if the coin lands tails, the same thing will happen. She'll be woken up, she'll be interviewed, she'll be asked the same questions. But then, instead of leaving the room, she'll be put back to sleep. And when she's put back to sleep, she'll be given another injection that will make her forget ever been having woken up in the first place. And if that initial coin flip was tails... This will repeat nine times. So nine times she'll be woken up, she'll be interviewed, asked whether the coin landed heads or tails, and she'll be put back to sleep nine times without ever remembering that this had happened previously. Now Sleeping Beauty knows in advance the way that this experiment is going to work. She doesn't know if the coin will land heads or tails, she doesn't know if she'll be woken up one time or nine, but she'll know what would happen if the coin landed heads or if the coin landed tails. So now the question is, What would Sleeping Beauty say when she was asked if the coin landed heads or tails? Well, the common sense answer would probably be to say, I don't know, surely it's 50-50. But that wouldn't be right. See, when she wakes up, there are essentially ten different possibilities. Under the first possibility, the coin would have been heads, and she's waking up for the one and only time that she would wake up during the experiment. But... Given that she's woken up nine different times if the coin lands tails, and she wouldn't remember any of her previous awakenings, she could currently be being woken up for the first time, for the second time, for the third, fourth, fifth, and all the way up until the ninth time that she's being woken up when the coin landed tails. So you can see, at the point of the coin flip, there are ten possible worlds the Sleeping Beauty can wake up in. One possible world where the coin landed heads, and nine possible worlds where the coin landed tails. And so, each time that Sleeping Beauty wakes up, the chance that the coin landed tails and that she's in one of the subsequent interviews is actually 90%, and Sleeping Beauty would be right to assume that the coin probably landed tails. And I think this provides a nice analogy with the simulation case. In the coin case, the fact that the chance of a coin landing heads or tails in a standard flip is 50-50 doesn't change the fact that each time Sleeping Beauty is woken up she's probably in a world where the coin landed tails. Because in a world where the coin landed tails, she'd undergo this awakening many more times. And the comparison is that equally in the simulation case, even if we say that the chance that we ever go on to create simulations is only one in a million, or whatever number we want to assign that probability, we can still say that it's far more likely that we're in a simulation ourselves. Because in that one in a million world where we create simulations, there would be a hugely vast number of simulations. So many simulations, in fact, that the possible number of simulated universes would massively outweigh the number of real universes, of course, which there can only be one of. So just like Sleeping Beauty, we have to say, we can't look around and tell whether or not we're in a simulation, just like she can't look around and figure out which side the coin landed. So we have to weigh up, how many possible worlds are there? Well, one way of looking at it is, If the chance that we go on to create simulations is one in a million, then there are 999,999 possible outcomes where I'm in the real world because we never went on to create simulations. But within that one in a million world where we go on to create simulations, the number of simulations we'd go on to create would be astronomically high. So for every 999,999 possible outcomes where I'm in the real world, There are actually trillions upon trillions of possible simulated universes that I might have been born into, just as there were nine different awakenings in the 50 50 world where Sleeping Beauty's coin landed tails. So, just as Sleeping Beauty would have been right to infer that she's likely in a world where the coin landed tails, we would be right to suppose that we're very much more likely to be living in a simulated universe. The point, then, in a sentence, is that given how many simulations could be created in the future, so long as there's at least some chance that these simulations would ever come about, we're committed to saying that the probability that we live in the real world, and not in one of these simulated universes, is very small indeed. Now, remember that I said earlier to hold on to that thought if you're someone who's sceptical about the idea that simulations containing billions of conscious people are actually possible. You might think that this comparison with games like The Sims is all a bit absurd, because obviously Sims aren't conscious, so why would simulated people be conscious? Perhaps all there'd be are very complex, lifelike replications of real people, but inside they wouldn't be thinking or feeling anything at all. If you're thinking that, and if you're right, well, then the whole simulation argument would fall away, because if simulations containing conscious beings were impossible, we couldn't possibly be in one ourselves. Well, you could certainly make this point, While I think the majority of philosophers who study consciousness think that consciousness probably is something that could be replicated in different brains, different machines, maybe even in a simulation, the argument hasn't been put to rest, and there are philosophers who think this wouldn't be possible. But you see, the genius of the simulation argument is that it's just as strong whether or not you even think it's possible that conscious simulated people could ever exist. Let's say that you're someone who thinks that these kinds of simulations are impossible, Well, how sure are you? Maybe you're really sure, maybe you've thought a lot about the philosophy of mind, you subscribe to a theory that says that simulated consciousness isn't possible, and you're 99.9% sure that your theory is correct. Because it would seem pretty strange to say that you're literally 100% sure that you know that your theory is correct. If you're 100% sure, then all the other philosophers of mind should stop their work and listen to you. So let's say you're 99.9% confident, or in other words, there is a 1 in 1,000 chance that you're wrong, and that simulated consciousness is actually possible. Well, what we can do is we can build that uncertainty into the simulation argument. So previously, we said that the probability that we go on to run simulations can be expressed by the likelihood that we reach a post-human era, times by the probability that posthumans are interested in running simulations now we can modify that and times that number again by the likelihood that simulations are even possible so if we're running with the numbers we suggested earlier we can say that there's a one in a thousand chance that we reach a post human era a one in 1000 chance that post humans would want to run simulations and a one in 1000 chance that consciousness can even be simulated now times these together and you get an updated probability that we go on to run conscious simulations now it's one in a billion But still, because the number of universes we'd go on to build, if we ever did so, is so great, the expected number of simulated universes would still very much outweigh the number of real universes. So long as you assign at least some possibility to the idea that conscious simulations are possible, we still can't escape the fact that we're very probably in a simulation right now. As you'd imagine, since Bostrom made this argument, it's got a lot of people talking. I mean, it's one of the most astounding arguments that you can make that, given what seems like a reasonable set of assumptions that seem not too controversial, we're almost definitely living in a simulation. It's earth-shattering. As I mentioned earlier, Elon Musk has spent a lot of time puzzling over this argument. I heard him say in an interview that he and his brother have had to implement a rule where they can't discuss the simulation argument while they're sat in a hot tub together, because apparently that kept happening, which sounds like just about the most tech billionaire thing I've ever heard Elon Musk himself, though, thinks that the argument holds, and he doesn't want to accept either of the first two propositions, so he thinks there's at least some chance we'll reach a post-human era, and at least some chance that we'd remain interested in running simulations. So he's publicly concluded that the probability that we're not in a simulation is one in billions. But there are other scientists who have different ideas, so you can watch a debate on YouTube where Neil deGrasse Tyson estimates the chance of our living in a simulation at somewhere around 50%. Whereas Lisa Randall, she's a theoretical physicist at Harvard, she actually puts the number at 0%, because as far as she's concerned, we have absolutely no reason to think that our far-future descendants would have any interest in simulating our lives whatsoever. Now, personally, I find that argument a little strange, because just thinking about the research potential, and, and maybe even entertainment potential of running simulations, surely generates at least some chance that our descendants would be interested in simulating our lives, And as we've said, we only need there to be some chance that they'd be interested in doing so for it to be almost certainly the case that we're currently in a simulation. I was actually surprised to read that Nick Bostrom himself, the guy who wrote the paper, he doesn't commit himself to saying that we're probably in a simulation because as far as he's concerned, we have almost no evidence to say which proposition out of A, B and C is correct. So it it might well be the case that it's all but impossible for us to reach a posthuman era and it might be the case that our post-human descendants would really have no desire to run simulations. There's no evidence for or against. We've never seen a post-human person, so we should be agnostic about it. But even still, if you agree with Bostrom and you say that propositions A, B and C are all equally likely to be true, given our current evidence, and you assign something like a 33% chance to the fact we're living in a simulation, even that still seems like a pretty surprising conclusion to reach. Since Bostrom wrote this paper, as I said, it's received a load of attention, and one thing that a lot of people have said is, wow, this argument seems pretty compelling, I can't see where it goes wrong, but now I really want to know, do we live in a simulation? Well, as it happens, it might actually be kind of difficult to ever figure that out. In actual fact, it might be impossible. Nick Bostrom pointed out in his paper that you might imagine that the creators of our simulation might prefer that we never figure out that we're in a simulation. I mean, let's say that there's a base-level reality, the people who live in the real world, and they build the simulation that we're currently inside. Maybe they're using our simulation to see how civilizations rise and fall, and they want to use their findings to build a super-robust civilization for themselves. But one day, we see something, or, or we learn something, that shows us once and for all that we're in a simulation. Our creators load up the computer screen the next morning, and all of a sudden they see billions of simulated people all holding up signs and banners saying, let us out of the simulation. All of a sudden the data wouldn't be very valuable anymore, it wouldn't accurately model their own world, so our simulation has no more use for them. It's quite conceivable that someone who built a simulation might, for these kinds of reasons or other kinds of reasons, never want the simulated people to know that their universe is simulated. So what might they do to stop this from happening? Well, one thing you might do is write a piece of code that notifies you when the simulated people realise their simulations. So you can quickly jump into the coding, edit the brain states of people who figured it out, so they can carry on as normal as they were before, none the wiser. Or maybe you could just skip back a few years on the simulation, stop anyone figuring out that they were in a simulation, and let it carry on again. If we were in a simulation and our creators had these kinds of powers, it might be completely futile to try and figure out if we're in a simulation, because they might not let us ever know in the first place, or or worse, if we did, they might just turn the simulation off. That's a little bit on the speculative side, but some people have thought about the problem and come up with a few more concrete things we could look for that could show us whether or not we're in a simulation. One example is a scientist called Silas Bean and his team, who a few years ago pointed out that if we assume that the computational power source that's being used to run our universe, run our simulation, is finite, then there must be some upper limit to how detailed our creators can make our universe. So if a computer is unable to make our universe literally infinitely detailed, the scientists have suggested that if we look closely enough, we might be able to find evidence that our universe has been only approximately rendered, so we might find some kind of equivalent of pixels And from that, we could infer that our universe is simulated. Along those lines, there's an entrepreneur called Riz van Verk, who wrote a book about the simulation hypothesis. And he's pointed to something called quantum indeterminacy as a kind of example of this. So for those of you who, like me, are absolutely no expert in quantum physics, this is more or less the idea that until they're observed, until somebody looks at them, quantum particles can be in more than one place at the same time. It's only when they're being observed that they actually occupy a determinate location. And for Virg, this is very interesting, and something that sounds similar to the way that we program video games today. So obviously there's a limit to the amount of detail that we can put in our video games. And One way of getting around that is that by using certain optimization techniques, so for example a video game might only actively render the object with which you're actually interacting at a given time, So if you're in a video game and you walk over to one part of town, your console isn't going to be actively rendering all the buildings on the other side of town. There's no need because you're not interacting with them anyway. All the console needs to do is render the things you're actually seeing and interacting with. And that way, the console can make those things even more detailed. Now, we might suppose that if we were to run a simulation, we might want to do the same kind of thing to save processing power. So, for example there would be no need to actively render all the stars on the other side of the universe until we're actually observing them. And we might be able to say the same thing about quantum particles. They're so minute that there might be no point in rendering them until they're being observed. And according to Virg, that might be what's going on here. Perhaps the reason that quantum particles have this indeterminacy is they're actually an example of our creators using certain kinds of optimization techniques. But there aren't really any physicists who think we've actually found conclusive evidence yet that we're in a simulation. There are certain scientific experiments we could do to see if any kind of irregularities exist that might show that we're being simulated only down to a certain level of detail. But as of right now, these are all speculative. I mentioned earlier that you can find some pretty crazy rabbit holes when you spend long enough on the internet. And when you're reading up on the simulation argument, seeing if anyone else thinks they found any conclusive evidence one way or the other, Once you get past the small handful of legitimately interesting scientific and philosophical theories, you get to a point where you're really starting to scrape the barrel. I don't know if any of you have ever stumbled across any of the Glitch in the Matrix forums, but these are basically people who think they've seen something really weird one day, something that they think could only be explained by the fact that our world is a simulation. There's a Glitch in the Matrix subreddit, for example, which I wouldn't take too seriously, but it makes for a fun bit of scrolling. It's full of people writing stories. There's one about a guy who thinks that he called his home phone and had a conversation with himself on the other end, and another about a guy who woke up from a coma with vivid memories of a life that never happened. And there's also one particular phenomena that people spoke about on these forums that went viral a few years ago. There's something called the Mandela Effect, where a lot of people, this is really strange, are absolutely adamant that they remember TV coverage of Nelson Mandela's death in the 1980s and certain pockets of the internet went into chaos when they heard that he died in 2013. And the idea is that there's been some kind of glitch in our simulation, a kind of glitch that wouldn't have happened if we were living in the real world. Nick Bostrom actually mentioned himself when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, that he sometimes receives mail from people who are convinced that they saw their bathroom mirror become pixelated or something crazy like that. But as Bostrom points out, if we were in the real world, You'd expect people to misremember things, maybe to hallucinate things, even to lie about certain things happening. So these kinds of anecdotal evidence probably aren't very good evidence that we're in a simulation, but they're fun to think about anyway. So setting aside the occasional speculation here and there, it's difficult to see what kind of evidence we could come up with one way or the other. I think the simulation argument itself is what does most of the talking here. If you accept the starting points, you're left concluding that we're almost certainly in a simulation. But if the simulation argument is right, and we really are in a simulation, it might bring up some massive implications. And that's why I wanted to look at this argument in particular for this episode. If it turned out that we really are in a simulation, this could affect our whole sense of identity, certainly our sense of purpose. Maybe we would have been created with some kind of destiny in mind. I mean, most fundamentally, having had quite a few conversations about the simulation argument, I think that one implication that seems to unsettle at least some people is the idea that our universe just isn't real, that it's just code on some unknown computer. For some people, this might bring about a kind of existential despair, a feeling that our entire existence is futile leading nowhere. I've resisted quoting anything from The Matrix up until now, but in response to this kind of worry, what to me feels more resonant is the quote from Morpheus when he says... If real is what you can feel, smell, taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. So, you know, if we discovered that we were in a simulation, this needn't make the universe any less real. I mean, you would still exist, your car would still exist, your family would exist too. The only thing that would change is that they're fundamentally comprised of information rather than matter. Personally, I feel like I can take a bit of solace in that thought, that even if the world were a simulation, I'd still go on thinking and feeling in the same way, nothing would cease to exist. We'd just exist in a slightly different way than we'd thought. But there might be some more practical implications to the fact that we're living in a simulation too. I mean, religion is an obvious place to start. So the philosopher David Chalmers points out that if we really are in a simulation, depending on how you define the word God you might want to say that we do have some kind of God in the form of an all-powerful and all-seeing creator. We might not be talking about God in the traditional sense here. I mean, there's every chance that our God could just be a bored teenager sat in his bedroom simulating universes on his computer. But if there were a God, under some loose definition of the word God, it might not be immediately clear whether this is a good or a bad thing. Certainly, it might open up some possibilities that we might not otherwise have had access to, For anyone who's a reluctant atheist, anyone who'd really like to believe in some kind of an afterlife but find themselves unconvinced by religion, there's every possibility that there might be some kind of afterlife awaiting us after our death within the simulation. If our creators wanted to create such an afterlife, it seems like it would be within their power to do so. Or going down a similar route, we might think that if we really do have creators, this gives us more reason to act morally throughout the course of our lives. I mean, with a creator comes the possibility that we'll be rewarded or punished for our behaviour. Our entry into the afterlife might be dependent upon this. So you might think that learning that we're in a simulation might give us more of a reason to act morally. But on the flip side, there are consequences of our world having a creator, and presumably a creator who holds some kind of power over our universe and over our lives. One danger of having this kind of a god might be that our creator would presumably have the power to end our lives in an instant, to end the entire universe by switching off the simulation, and without knowing anything about our creators, we have no reason to think that isn't a very real possibility. I I kind of touched upon this point earlier when I was talking about the research possibilities of creating simulations. If we live in a simulation that was created for research purposes, and we discovered that our universe was in fact a simulation, and our universe therefore stopped providing any benefits to our creators, who's to say they wouldn't just switch us off? In actual fact, a philosophy professor called Preston Green wrote a paper on this very point, and the point of his paper was basically to issue a serious warning to any scientist who wants to try to prove that we're living in a simulation. Green pointed out that if we're trying to get to the bottom of the mystery, one of two things will happen. On the one hand, we might fail to find any convincing evidence that we're in a simulation, in which case the experiment would have been a waste of time. But on the other hand, we might conclusively show that we're in a simulation, in which case this might have very grave consequences, and there are plausible reasons to think that this could risk the termination of our universe. His point being, then, that we should set this whole question to one side, because if we truly were in a simulation, it might be in our best interests never to discover this fact. Or in other words, maybe we should take Morpheus's blue pill. But that's not the only way that we could inadvertently bring about the end of our universe, Green also brings up a technical worry when he imagines that we might one day start building simulations ourselves. Now, we mentioned earlier that if we were in a simulation, the supercomputer running our simulation would presumably have only a finite amount of processing power. This would mean that the supercomputer would only be able to run a given number of simulations, even if that number were very high. So, let's imagine that the supercomputer was running at full capacity, simulating billions of universes and then one day we reach the stage where we could build a simulation ourselves. If we tried to do so, sure, we'd be using our own computational power from within our own universe, but the source of that would derive from our creators who are the ones generating our universe. And given that they were running at full capacity themselves, us trying to run our own simulations might then cause some kind of crash in the system as it tries to cope with more processes than it has the power to do. Or, you know, imagine that we created billions of simulations, and then within the simulations we created, they go on to create trillions more simulations. This loop could go on forever, and it would presumably reach a point where the supercomputer who simulated us in the first place can't go on simulating us. If any of you have seen the Rick and Morty car battery episode, where Rick runs a simulation to power his car battery and then someone within that simulation creates another simulation to run their own car battery, it's a similar idea, the cycle could go on forever. And sure, this is all speculation, but that's one implication of our universe being a simulation, and it's a scary implication. The idea that creating our own simulations could put such strain on our host's supercomputer that it causes the end of our own universe. The troubling thing with these kinds of ideas is that if we are simulated, we don't know why we've been simulated, we don't know who we've been simulated by, we don't know anything about the real world. And I'll throw this thought out there, maybe it might be in our interests to try and do something about it. I'm not going to give this suggestion too much thought, because it does sound utterly outrageous. But when I was somewhere along the rabbit hole researching for this episode, I found a very well-written article from The New Yorker in 2016 written by Tad Friend. Now, as part of this article, he had access to some really high-profile figures in Silicon Valley, such as Elon Musk and Sam Altman, who co-founded OpenAI along with Musk, and he's also the former president of Y Combinator. It's a long article, but dropped somewhere in the middle is the following sentence, so quote, Two tech billionaires have gone so far as to secretly engage scientists to work on breaking us out of the simulation, end quote. Now, this got people talking, and there are a few articles written about this in the next few days. From what I read, Elon Musk himself is reportedly one of these two billionaires. And just as an interesting aside, Musk actually donated $10 million himself to the Future of Humanity Institute, who were the organisation that Bostrom himself works for. Anyway, Nick Bostrom himself actually commented on the speculation that there are scientists out there working on busting us out of the simulation in 2019, but he didn't sound too enthusiastic about it. He said that it's unlikely that this is being done on a large scale, and that if anyone is working on it, they should think carefully about doing so, because similar to the point made by Preston Green earlier, there's two possibilities. Either their efforts fail, in which case it's a waste of money, or they succeed, in which case the results may well be catastrophic, because who's to say the real world is any better than this one? I mean, we've all seen The Matrix. A lot of this stuff is by its very nature speculative, because it's difficult to imagine that we could ever conclusively show that we're in a simulation, or in the real world. But what I do definitely think is that the reasoning behind the simulation argument seems pretty robust. There seems to be good reason to think that the probability we're in a simulation is worth taking note of, and that if we are in a simulation, it might have big ramifications on the way we should go about our lives and the whole story and meaning behind our existence. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and I'll be back on the first Monday of May on the 4th to talk about some more sci-fi theories that might have big implications for our future prospects as a civilization. I'll be talking about the Fermi Paradox and why it matters. I just want to take a moment to give another massive thank you to those of you who have supported the show via Patreon. For any of you who don't know, Patreon is a service where you can make a monthly contribution starting from just $1 a month to cover the costs of running the show and keep it going. And if any of you are interested in taking a look for yourselves, you can find the page on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. Alternatively, it's always a big boost if you're able to leave a quick rating and a review on your podcast app of choice. It really helps with the show's rankings. Well, anyway, thanks for listening to this month's episode, and I'll see you in May.